Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of the Love is Stronger Than Fear podcast. I'm your host, Amy Julia Becker, and each week we are going to take a look at current events, aka the coronavirus, and we're going to consider a small portion of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul wrote this letter under adverse circumstances, and he wrote about how to know joy, peace, hope, and love, not by denying the hardship of the moment, but by knowing God in the midst of that hardship. I hope that reading the Bible in our current moment of uncertainty and turmoil will help us to turn away from fear and toward love. Thank you for joining me. So a couple of weeks ago, we received in the mail five masks from my Aunt Jane, who has been dutifully sewing pieces of fabric and old pillowcases and old napkins into lovely, fashionable masks for various people. I told our kids about this, that we now each had a mask of our own from Aunt Jane. And I also told them that she had done things like sent 100 masks to a Native American reservation where she learned they were in need and to a ventilator-making facility where the workers did not have enough masks to protect themselves. Merrily heard about these efforts that Aunt Jane was making and said, well, I want to do that. I want to help. What can we do? And we talked a little bit about how Gosh, you know, I've never owned a sewing machine, and if any of you have read my book, Small Talk, you might recall that I went through a phase of trying to be a domestic person who learned how to do things like garden and sew, and how I failed in that attempt, and certainly now is not the time to try to learn how to make masks for people. So there's a degree of, merely, I'm sorry, I am incapable of helping in that way. But it did prompt this sense of a deeper sense of helplessness in our isolation. It's hard to help other people when you got to take care of yourself. And for me as a mom, recognizing that it's not just I need to take care of myself by, you know, taking showers and getting some exercise and getting some personal time. But it's also I need to take care of our household. I need to have three kids learn something in this time. We need to have food on the table and the food options we had before are not as available. I'm doing a lot more cooking these days. There's an inability to physically care for other people in that I'm not allowed to touch them. I'm not allowed to see them. I'm not allowed to be present to them. So I said to Marilee, sweetie, maybe we can write notes to some elderly people in our congregation. That would encourage them. And she was a little dejected because she really wanted to help in some more tangible and physical way. And we talked a little bit about why we felt incapable, why we felt helpless, and even that there is a potential for rushing in to try and help in a situation without actually understanding the costs and the risks involved and the problems for unhelpful or arrogant do-gooderism. But at the same time, in having that conversation, it just reminded me of wanting to know, well, wait a second, how can we help one another? And what if it is possible? And what if it can happen out of a place of abundance as well as a place of humility? What if helping other people depends upon receiving 
the boundless, abundant love of God, and then doing our small part to participate in that love. At the end of this podcast, I'll tell you some more about where this conversation with Marilee has led us. But for now, I do want to turn to this book of Philippians. It's a book written by the Apostle Paul as a letter to a group of people in Philippi many, many years ago, 2000 years ago. And he's been writing from prison to this group of fledgling Christians to encourage them, to help them to understand what it looks like to have joy in the midst of adversity. And so I think it's really relevant to our current situation as Americans who are experiencing the medical hardships of the coronavirus and all of those implications, the economic hardships of a global pandemic, and the social hardships of living isolated from one another and yet perhaps too close (laughs) to some of the people that we are actually in our houses with. So here's the passage for today. This is Philippians 2 verses 12 through 18. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. A couple things to point out in this passage. One is just that Paul refers to the Philippians as my beloved. It's this little phrase, but it speaks so much to the relationship that existed between Paul and these people, but also between God and these people. He later talks about them being blameless and innocent children of God. So not servants of God, not people who obey God, but children of God, little beloved ones. So there is a sense of for all of us, If we are going to work out our salvation, which we'll talk about in just a minute, if we are going to participate in God's work for God's good pleasure, then how do we do it? We do it as the beloved ones. We do it as the ones who so deeply and with such confidence understand who we are in God's sight that who we are flows naturally out of us towards other people. So then we get to this kind of funny verse where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that sounds at first like salvation comes as you work for it. You're not saved unless you work hard. And that actually is antithetical to a lot of what Paul says elsewhere. 
and to the gospel of grace that he preaches, as well as to the gospel that Jesus preaches, in which he says, you know what? It's impossible to do salvation without God. It's impossible. You can't save yourself. You can't earn your salvation. That's not the way it works. So what Paul is actually saying here is you've been saved by grace. That's already happened. It's accomplished. It's finished. It's done. You have been rescued. Now there is a response, a response that you get to participate in. There is purposeful work for you to do now that you are already permanently and without question saved by grace. Not only do you have work to do based upon the salvation that has already been given to you, but you have your own work. I think that's so interesting. Work out your own salvation. And there are a couple ways to understand this. And maybe it's an either or, or maybe it's a both and. You have your own work to do, meaning one, that it's apart from Paul. He can't work out the salvation for you. So for any of us who've had spiritual leaders in our lives for whom we're really grateful, that's awesome. But we have work to do to work out our own salvation apart from those leaders. But secondly, it's going to look different from everybody else's because God has particularly gifted each of us to participate in his loving work in the world, in us and through us and around us. I've probably always believed that on some level that we all have gifts to offer to one another, but I didn't really begin to understand it until our daughter Penny was born. As many of you know, Penny was born now 14 years ago, over 14 years ago, and she was diagnosed with Down syndrome a couple of hours after her birth. And that led me into a lot of questions and doubts and really a rethinking of what it means to be a human being. Because when Penny was first born and was diagnosed with an intellectual disability and lots of developmental delays, I felt as though she was in a category of neediness that was different than mine. And honestly, I thought I was in a category of giftedness that was different than hers. Like she was more needy and I was more gifted and that that was true of people in general with intellectual disabilities and with the intellectual abilities I had been given. But I didn't like that I believed that. It was kind of like this surfaced in my experience with Penny and I looked at it and said, oh, that doesn't look good. But if I'm honest, that's really what I believe. I have deep-seated prejudice against people with intellectual disabilities, and I want to address them, but I want to do it with integrity. I want, to, I want to really examine this. And so over time, I began to see, first, my own neediness, my own vulnerability, and the ways in which I tried to cover it over with my intelligence and abilities. But I also started to see and believe that everyone had gifts to offer, that everyone had their own work to do in the world to bring blessing and to participate in God's good pleasure. And I remember I write about this in A Good and Perfect Gift, which is one of my books and the one that I wrote after Penny was first born. 
We were a couple years into this journey, and I had begun to believe that everyone has needs and everyone has gifts, and as we match those up one with the other, we get to see some of the beauty of the way God has woven human lives together. But nevertheless, Penny was three years old, our son William was about six months old, and we invited a family over. And this family had adopted three children with Down syndrome when they were very young and they were now teenagers. And so when they came over, I didn't have a ton of experience with people with Down syndrome at this point, and certainly not with teenagers. And when they came over, I was somewhat surprised because one of their daughters, for example, who also was on the autism spectrum, did not have very many words. And she was very polite and well-mannered and helpful, but also made some grunting noises that made me feel uncomfortable and carried a doll around with her wherever she went. And as far as I could see, she was a needy human being. And that was all I was able to see for a while when she was with us. So as the night goes on, I'm questioning my own desire to see her as gifted and not just as needy, because all I can see is her need. And a few hours into our time together, I walked into the playroom and I need to back up a minute and tell you that William was one of the most tight babies (laughs) that his pediatrician had ever seen. I mean, he actually said that William might have a neurological problem because of how tightly wound his muscles were. And any of you who are moms and dads can imagine how that translates into a baby. If you're tightly wound, then guess how relaxed you're able to be. So William didn't sleep much. If he was ever on his back, he was kind of grunting and squirming and punching the air. And we had a rough go of it when he was first born and really until he was about a year old. So I walk into the playroom and there's William like a limp rag on the floor, gazing up into Maggie's eyes. She has her hand on his belly and she's just sitting with him. And it was as if peace itself had sat down next to him for the first time in his life. She never said a word. She never moved. She sat there with her hand gently resting on him for, I don't know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, felt like an hour to me because I'd never seen my child so calm. It was beautiful. And I came away from that moment thinking, wow, that was a gift. She did not only give a gift, but give one to me in my need because I need for William to be peaceful at least sometimes. But I also wondered whether I was just making the whole thing up because I wanted to believe that everyone has gifts. So I went to Maggie's mom and I didn't say anything about, oh, this is so cool. She's so gifted in these ways. I just told her mom the story. And these are her words, exactly what she said to me. She said, oh, yeah, that's Maggie's gift. And I said, what do you mean? And she went on to tell me of all the times throughout their life together when Maggie had identified the person in the room who needed a hand of healing presence, who needed someone to sit gently, quietly, peacefully, with no words, with them. And that is what she did for my son, but it's what she had done for countless other people as well. However... For me, with all of my 
quick moving, productive, efficient way through life. I mean, how easily could I miss that gift? It was only in looking and believing in the giftedness of every human being I encountered that I even began to start to see that. I bring this all up in order to say that we do all have ways to work out our own salvation because we all have been given gifts by God that other people need. We also have all been given needs that other people have gifts that they can help to fulfill. I offer that as an encouragement for each of us to think about what does it mean if we understand ourselves as God's beloved ones to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We're taking this seriously for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, to make choices and to take action, to make choices and to take action to bring about goodness and love and peace and joy in the world. So here we are. What is the work that God has given me, that God has given you in this moment? How can you live into your belovedness? How can I do that? How can Marilee do that? Paul goes on to write, Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. I love that image of shining like stars in the world. And I read it and I think, yeah, I'd love to shine like a star in the darkness. I'd love to be a beacon of light. How do we do that? And how do we do that with humility and not with arrogance? And perhaps the first thing to say is that On some level, I think the moon is the better analogy than the star in terms of offering light to the world because the moon reflects the light of the sun. And we are called to be lights in the darkness of the world and in the darkness of human hearts. But we are called to be a light that reflects the light of God, not a light that is generating unto itself. So shine like the moon in the darkness, although shining like stars is probably a better turn of phrase. But I want to share, as the second part of this podcast today, a process that I have come to think about and understand as a way to respond to pain and harm and need in the world, and to do so out of giftedness, with humility, and in a holistic fashion. I wrote a book, as many of you know, called White Picket Fences, which was about social divisions and social harm. And a lot of people read that book and they got to the end of it and they said, okay, I acknowledge that these social divisions are not what we want as human beings, not what God wants for us, not how I want to live. But now what? Now that you've identified all of these problems and even that I have a role in that, what do I do? And so I wrote an ebook called Head, Heart, Hands. It's a companion to White Picket Fences. You can find it on my website. And I've actually also went ahead and recorded Head, Heart, Hands, the short ebook that I wrote as a bonus episode of this podcast. So if you're a subscriber, you'll see that there's a bonus episode that came along with what you're hearing right now. And that's the full audiobook version of this Head, Heart, Hands ebook. 
but that is also available just as a free download and it's got some additional resources and links and questions for discussion on my website if you're interested. But I'll give you just a short version of what I talk about in Head, Heart, Hands because I think it's helpful in thinking through what it means to work out our own salvation, to shine like stars in the world, and to do all of that in a holistic way in which we are participating in the love that God has for us and for other people. So head, heart, hands. Head is just thinking about whatever social problem is at hand, thinking about it asking questions, gathering information, learning history, understanding the current situation and context, and also thinking about who am I? Which parts of this problem do I have some knowledge about? Do I have some contacts with other people? For people right now who are in the healthcare field, it's pretty clear what it means to respond with love. For someone like my Aunt Jane, I don't know, maybe it was just really clear. I know how to sew, so I've got something to do and I'm going to get to it. But for me, as someone who feels more removed from some of these physical needs and more incapable, I had to really think about it. What does it mean for me to participate in the loving work of responding to the problems we see via the coronavirus right now? But the next action after head is to use your heart. And the way I think about using your heart is, so it's points of connection, emotional and relational and spiritual connection, and that's both vertical and horizontal. So the vertical side of this would be connecting to God, receiving the love of God, spiritual practices that root and ground us in love so that we aren't trying to generate our own love, our own light but instead are relying upon the boundless love and light of God in order to offer that to others. So that can involve prayer. It can involve reading the Bible. It can involve asking God for help and direction. And it also then on the horizontal level means connecting to other people. It can mean connecting to other people who are prayers and who want to address the same types of social issues. It can mean connecting to other people in order to learn from them. So if I want to get involved in an anti-poverty measure in a local community, well, I better have some friends or at least some contacts who I trust who live in that community and who I have a real relationship with, a relationship of trust, a relationship of the heart, And not just a relationship of me as a wealthy white woman from the suburbs coming in and having thinking I have answers to the problems of poverty in this area. So we need to connect with our hearts, both to the spiritual resources available to us, but also to the real people who can teach us and who can join us and who can be in those relationships of mutual love and care and concern with us. And then finally, we use our hands. We take action. We take humble but confident action. And that action, again, might be making masks in this time. It might be we've got a local restaurant in our town that's been doing takeout for a number of weeks for, I think, Wednesday through Sunday nights, maybe. And they realized over time that there are also people who are going hungry in our town. There are people who can afford to buy takeout, and they're doing that. But there are also people who are going hungry. And so that restaurant said, you know what we can do? 
On Tuesday nights, we can offer a free dinner. And every worker in that restaurant added a night of their work for free. They come in on Tuesday nights and they prepare the food and they serve the food and they don't get paid for it in order to give to those who are in need. It's such a beautiful expression of using their gifts, even at, again, a risk and sacrifice of both time and potentially of their own health to be there serving for free. I just read an article about Dr. Anthony Fauci in The New Yorker. Dr. Fauci has been on the news a lot throughout this pandemic, but he's also been working in government for the past 40 years. And it talked about during the AIDS pandemic, how he started out as a guy who was kind of stuck in his head because he knew that the protocols for developing drug treatments to combat viruses and diseases had merit, that you needed to wait this long in order to try this, and you tried one drug at a time so you didn't get confused about what the research was showing. And yet over time, instead of just staying in his head, his heart got involved because he began to meet these men. At that point, it was mostly gay men who were dying of AIDS. He began to meet them and to recognize, you know what, if we don't give you access to these trial drugs, like you're just going to die. And his heart got involved. And so his head and his heart together enabled him in his position to use his hands to change the ways in which those drug trials were run and to keep the cautions, the necessary precautions in place while at the same time accelerating access to some of those medicines in hopes of helping people fight this disease and stay alive. We have so many examples of people who use their head and their hearts in order to take meaningful, purposeful, loving action in the world. One of the things I've thought about a lot lately is what it means to count our action. How do we know if it counts? How do we know if it will actually make a difference in the world? And really, what it comes down to is whether we are holding fast to the word of life. That's what lets us know if we're not running in vain or laboring in vain, as Paul talks about it. He says, even if I'm being poured out as a libation, not a word we hear very often, Poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad. Paul's saying, you know what? Even if I die here in prison, even if I'm poured out and it looks like my life has come to nothing, even if it looks like all I've done is write some letters and tell some people about Jesus and it caused my death, it's been worth it. I am glad and I rejoice with you because you are holding fast to the word of life. Our actions in the world are not measured by the numbers of people who we help or save. Our actions in the world are not measured by whether or not they've been liked on Instagram or whether or not we've had a successful GoFundMe campaign or we've impressed people enough to make it into a news headline. Our actions in the world, if they are motivated by the love of God at work within us, and if they are participating in the love and light of God in the world around us, they're measured by faithfulness. They're measured by fruitfulness, by the small, gentle, slow, 
but beautiful action of grace at work in the world around us. So I told you at the beginning of this podcast about the conversation that Marilee and William was there too, actually, the three of us had where she was frustrated that we couldn't make masks and that we didn't have more direct action that we could offer. And I said, you know, guys, the thing I'm concerned about is kids across this nation, but I'm thinking particularly of kids here in Connecticut and in towns near ours who don't really have access to education right now, who don't have the Chromebooks that you guys have, who don't have the Wi-Fi connections, who don't have the teachers who are able to connect with them and teach them in that way. And so we started talking and we said, what if we did some work to research who doesn't have access to the internet and who doesn't have access to Chromebooks and whether or not people in those communities and those school districts think it would actually be helpful to have that kind of access. We spent last week, a half an hour a day, the three of us sitting around a little table doing some research talking to some special education teachers, talking to some people in the Department of Education here in Connecticut, talking to some principals and reaching out to various teachers and students and parents that we know, just asking questions, using our head. We've got at least another week of that because there's so much we're learning about the barriers to getting Chromebooks into the hands of kids in such a way that they'd be able to use them for learning. But we're learning those things. And we're trying to connect with our hearts to actually pray about this, to connect to people in communities that don't have the same amount of internet connectivity and Chromebook accessibility as we do. And then we will take action. And I don't know what that's going to look like quite yet. I don't know what it will mean for us to use our hands in this way, but I know that this is a part of us working out our own salvation right now. As God's beloved ones, children of God, who are invited and equipped to participate in his loving work in the world. So that's what I offer to all of us to consider how we can participate in our own ways in a work of healing and love, even in a time of brokenness and pain. It might be sewing masks. It might be giving away food. It might be donating money. It might be looking at a social problem and saying, I got to learn more about this. I got to connect to some people. And then I'm going to see prayerfully, humbly, And yet with great confidence at the same time that the work God is doing is something I can be a part of because not only am I a needy, limited, and vulnerable person, but I'm also a gifted one who has a part to play. A little part, but a part all the same in the healing and redemptive work that is always and everywhere accessible to us in this world. So again, I'll just mention, uh, you'll get a separate episode of this podcast today called Head, Heart, Hands. That is an audio recording of the ebook I wrote called Head, Heart, Hands. So listen to that or head over to my website where you can download it for free. It's under the resources tab on amyjuliabecker.com. 
If you do get a chance to look at it, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you are doing to engage your head, your heart, and your hands, or of stories that you know of people around you who are engaging their head, their heart, and their hands. And I just want to end by reminding you that your head, your heart, and your hands might be something that is only seen in your own home by caring for a little one, by writing a note to a neighbor, by reaching out to your mom or dad, um, knowing that they are lonely. It doesn't have to be grand. It doesn't have to be solving education or creating a food bank. It's your part that we all are invited to do. And I hope that this comes as an encouragement and not as any sort of drain or any sense that I've got to be doing more in order to be beloved before God. You are already beloved. You are already God's child and you're already saved by grace. And you're invited to experience the joy of participating and living out that reality. Thanks, as always, for listening. Thanks again for tuning in to the Love is Stronger Than Fear podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more resources at my website, amyjuliabecker.com. And if you found today's episode helpful, please share it with friends. And take a minute to rate and review it wherever you find your podcasts. See you next week.